In regard to the meaning of the Greek word ecclesia, translated church, it is well to keep in mind that in the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and which was in common use in Palestine in Jesus' day, the word ecclesia is used about 70 times to render the Hebrew word quahal, assembly or congregation. This translation was made in Alexandria, Egypt about 150 B.C. by a group of 70 scholars, whence it received its name. Consequently, the Jewish people were familiar with this rendering and naturally would have connected the New Testament church with the assembly or congregation of Israel as it had existed in Old Testament times. It is perfectly obvious, of course, that the church did not come to maturity until the Holy Spirit was poured out upon it at Pentecost. Whereas the Old Testament saints saw only the shadow of things to come, as those were made known to them through the words of the prophets, the sacrifices, and the rituals, the New Testament saints walk in the full light of revelation and know the Christ who has provided that redemption. Furthermore, the New Testament church has a separate and visible form all its own, while the Old Testament church was bound up with the Israelitish nation, although it was not identical with it. The New Testament church is universal in its outreach, while the Old Testament church was limited to the nation of Israel. The Levitical law prescribed in detail both the worship and the civil life of ancient Israel, telling the people what they could do and what they could not do while we who are in the New Testament church are free from those restrictions and are governed not by laws but by basic moral and spiritual principles. Hence the glory of the church under the new dispensation is far greater than it was under the old. But regardless of the differences, the church in the new dispensation is the continuation of that in the old, so that we who are Gentiles are, as Paul tells us, no more strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom each several building, fitly framed together, groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 2 verses 19 through 21 we have referred to Paul's use of the figure of the olive tree to illustrate the continuity between believers in Israel and believers in the New Testament church. The people of Israel were the olive tree, but because of unbelief, many of them, like dead branches, were broken off. Others were not broken off, but continued in their native tree. In place of the branches that were broken off, Branches from a wild olive tree were grafted in and became partakers with them of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Romans 11 verse 17 Those who are grafted in are warned, Glory not over the branches, but if thou gloriest, it is not thou that beareth the root, but the root thee. Verse 18 Thus the life of the olive tree, which is God's people, continues unbroken. Israel and the Christian church are not two distinct olive trees, but one. A clearer illustration of the continuity of Old Testament Israel over the New Testament church could hardly be imagined. Another serious defect in dispensational teaching is its doctrine that many portions of the Bible are not meant for the church age at all, that is, not for Christians, but that they are intended for a future Jewish-led kingdom. 
This follows from your belief that most of Christ's ministry was taken up with preaching designed to prepare Israel for the kingdom. But that when it became evident that the Jews would not accept the kingdom, the church was substituted. This means that the Lord's Prayer, the Sermon on the Mount, the Kingdom Parables, the Great Tribulation, the Book of Revelation chapters 4 through 19, and some say most of the New Testament except the Pauline epistles, are Jewish and legal and therefore do not concern the church. We point out, however, that Paul certainly did not make this distinction between the gospel of grace and the gospel of the kingdom of God. Rather, he identified the two, for late in his ministry he said to the elders of Ephesus, For I hold not my life of any account as dear unto myself, so that I may accomplish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, shall see my face no more. Acts 20, verses 24 and 25 Thus dispensationalists would put us back under the Old Testament economy with a millennial kingdom that is primarily Jewish and earthly. The boundaries of revived Israel would then be either those of the days of Solomon when it extended from the Egyptian border to the Euphrates River or those of the rectangular state described in Ezekiel's prophecy. The dispensationalists hold further that the temple will be rebuilt and that the Levitical sacrifices of bulls and goats will be renewed as described in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. We must say that this view is essentially Jewish in contrast with the view of historical premillennialism which, despite its other faults, is to be acknowledged as essentially Christian. After this survey of the church in both testaments we cannot but agree with Dr. Peters when he says the point at which Dr. Schofield comes most definitely into conflict with the historic Christian faith as otherwise held by all branches of the church both ancient and modern is his doctrine of the church in its relation to the Old Testament Israel. While in his premillennialism he has a certain degree of support from the post-apostolic age, there is no such support in this matter. This he himself recognizes, for his announcement of his position is as follows. Especially is it necessary to exclude the notion, a legacy of Protestant thought from post-apostolic and Roman Catholic theology, that the church is the true Israel and that the New Testament foreview of the kingdom is fulfilled in the church. To this latter comment, Peter's replies, here he says that the doctrine he opposes was taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Certainly it was, and by the Greek Church and by all the Protestant churches and by any sort of church of whatever name up to the time of John N. Darby, who was born in 1800 and died in 1882 a leader of the sect called the Plymouth Brethren. A quote from a candid examination of the Schofield Bible, page 23. Dr. H.A. Ironside, a dispensationalist and an ardent disciple of Schofield, acknowledges that the dispensational doctrine of the church is of comparatively recent origin. Says he, In fact, until brought to the fore through the writings and preaching, of a distinguished ex-clergyman, Mr. J. N. Darby, in the early part of the last century, it is scarcely to be found in a single book or sermon throughout a period of 1,600 years. 
If any doubt this statement, let them search, as the writer has in measure done, the remarks of the so-called fathers, both pre- and post-Nithian, the theological treatises of the scholastic divines, Roman Catholic writers of all shades of thought, the literature of the Reformation, the sermons and expositions of the Puritans, and the general theological works of the day. He will find the mystery conspicuous by its absence. A quote from Mysteries of God, page 50. Hence our conclusion must be that the church was foretold by the prophets. Far from being a mere interlude or parenthesis in kingdom history, an expedient to which Christ resorted when his plans were rejected by the Jews, the church is in reality the culmination and fruitage of the Old Testament kingdom. It is related to Old Testament Israel as the fruit is related to the flower. The organizational continuity between Israel and the church is not the same, but the spiritual continuity is the same. The church is therefore the instrument of God in all ages for the upbuilding of the kingdom. This means further that any of the prophecies or promises made to Old Testament Israel, which were not fulfilled before Israel ceased to be a nation, have either lapsed because Israel failed to meet the conditions, or they have now become the property of the church, which is the true and legal successor to Israel, and so find their fulfillment on a higher and spiritual plane. In other words, with the coming of Christ and the establishment of the Christian church, no Old Testament prophecy or promise remains which relates either to a future Jewish nation or to the Jewish people as such. Chapter 9, page 248, The Coming of Christ We have pointed out that the distinctive feature of premillennialism as regards the second coming of Christ is that the coming precedes the millennium. Historic premillennialism has held that certain predicted events are to precede the coming and that these would be signs that the coming was near. There has not always been agreement, however, as to what these events would be. Events usually mentioned are wars, famines, earthquakes, political turmoil, and unrest among the nations, the increase of knowledge and new inventions, the preaching of the gospel to all the nations, although there has been no agreement as to how intensive and effective that preaching must be, the return of the Jews to Palestine, and particularly the setting up of a Jewish national government in Palestine. Historic premillennialism has held that the church will go through the tribulation and that the events of Revelation chapters 4 through 19 are to be fulfilled before the return of Christ. On the other hand, dispensationalism has insisted on the any moment coming, which means that no predicted events remain to be fulfilled, and that there are therefore no signs to herald the coming. Dispensationalists place the events of Revelation chapters 4 through 19 after the rapture, and hold that they will occupy a period of seven years. Premillennialists of both schools represent the coming as near. They are never tired of quoting, Watch therefore, for ye know not the day nor the hour. Matthew twenty-five thirteen. The coming of the Lord is at hand. James 5, 8 For yet a very little while, he that cometh shall come and shall not tarry. Hebrews ten thirty-seven. Yea, I come quickly. Revelation twenty-two twenty, etc. 
They insist that only on the basis of their doctrine of the near return of Christ can justice be done to the warnings in Scripture that we are to be always ready, expect, and watch for the return of Christ. They object to postmillennialism on the ground that those who believe that Christ is not to come until after the millennium cannot expect or watch for his coming during their lifetime. It is true that postmillennialists normally do not expect the second coming during their lifetime, and in this regard they are in good company, for neither did the Apostle Paul expect the Lord's return within his lifetime. For to the elders from Ephesus he said, I know that after my departing, grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Acts 20.29 And again, For I am already being offered, and the time of my departure is come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 and 7 That the warnings of Christ's coming are not to be taken in the sense in which premillennialists take them, as though the second coming is to occur soon as measured by the calendar, is proved by the fact that these words were spoken or written over 19 centuries ago, and the second coming has not occurred yet. These words undoubtedly are intended to mean to us the same thing that they meant to the first century Christians. If they were intended to teach that Christ was to return in a short time, they have long since been proved false, and that we cannot admit. Men sometimes attempt to encourage false hopes, as in behalf of those who are incurably sick or deeply discouraged, but such counsel is hardly consistent with common honesty, and certainly such counsel could not have had any place in the teaching of Christ. If Christ had reference to his second coming, but did not know whether or not it would occur within their lifetime, then at best he could have warned them that his second coming might occur within that time. Honesty would have required that qualification. But the fact is that he gave them a practical warning against an event or events which it was implied would happen within their lifetime, not a speculative warning against something that might or might not happen during that time. And just what should be the physical state of mind of those who are watching for the second coming of Christ? Are they to jab their noses against the window panes looking for him? Or are they to stand gazing into the sky in the hope of seeing him appear at any moment in the clouds? Some have done just that. We venture to say, however, that the correct way to watch is to go steadily about our work, accomplishing the tasks that are before us, so that when he comes he will find us so occupied. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath set over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he cometh shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he will set him over all that he hath. Matthew 24 verses 45 through 47 the time of Christ's final coming was entirely uncertain, and even he himself in his human nature did not know when that would happen. But of that day and hour knoweth no one, not even the angels in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father only. Matthew 24:36. So far as his words were concerned that coming might have been soon, or it might have been in the far distant future, as we now see that it was. 
The disciples were told to be always ready, but there were no clear indications as to what form his coming would take. There were some indications his final coming might occur only after a considerable delay. On one occasion when the disciples, somewhat like the present-day premillennialists, supposed that the kingdom of God was immediately to appear, Revelation 19.11, he gave them the parable of the nobleman who went into a far country to receive a kingdom, an event which would take considerable time to accomplish. In the parable of the talents, it was after a long time that the Lord of those servants came to make a reckoning with them, Matthew 25.19. In the parable of the ten virgins, the bridegroom, after a long delay, came at midnight at the most unexpected hour, Matthew 25, verse 6. Immediately before the ascension of Christ, the disciples asked, Lord, dost thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But his reply was, It is not for you to know times and seasons, which the Father hath set within his own authority. But ye shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Acts chapter 1 verses 6 through 8 And more important and perhaps more clearly than anywhere else, in the Great Commission the disciples were commanded, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20 The task of presenting an effective witness to all the earth and we cannot believe that anything less than an effective witness will satisfy this command and the task of making disciples of all the nations and again we cannot believe that anything less than the Christianizing of these nations is the task assigned to the church this task we say is far from completed even in our day In these passages, Jesus repressed all expectation of the disciples for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel in their day and taught them that after his departure they would have other work which in the very nature of the case would be more than could be accomplished within their lifetime. Surely as the apostles came to realize the magnitude of the task that was to be accomplished in the Christian era, these considerations were sufficient to discourage any idea of an immediate or speedy return of Christ. True, they did not immediately understand the import of these words, nor the magnitude of the task that was assigned to them. But after Pentecost they did understand. And though the church began to grow, yet during their lifetime the heathenism of the empire scarcely felt the impact of the stone which was mysteriously cut out without hands. Daniel 2 verse 34 and the darkness that covered the earth had scarcely begun to be dissipated by the beams of the Son of Righteousness Malachi 4 verse 2 but a start had been made and in due time the divinely appointed results would appear another class of passages those which announced the judicial transfer of the kingdom of God from the Jews to the Gentiles teaches the same lesson The kingdom of God shall be taken away from you and shall be given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Matthew 21.43 Said Jesus to the Jews 
And again, And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Luke 21:24. Paul wrote, A hardening in part hath befallen Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. Romans 11, verses 25 and 26. Even a primitive Christian might be expected to understand that the duration of the kingdom in Gentile hands might reasonably be expected to be in proportion to the time that it had previously been in Jewish hands. The old dispensation was the time of the fullness of the Jews, and it had lasted some fifteen centuries. The new dispensation, the New Testament era, which was to extend from Pentecost until the end of the world, was the time of the fullness of the Gentiles. And the all-Israel, which is to be saved, includes not merely some part of the Jewish people, it is very clear that not all Jews are saved, but the sum total of the elect, God's people composed of both Jews and Gentiles, the Israel of God, that Paul refers to in Galatians 6.16. Just in proportion as the early Christians understood the teaching of Jesus, they could not have expected his early return. The course of history through the past 19 centuries demonstrates the truth of this statement. We can only marvel that after all this time, through which the premillennialists have steadily insisted that the return of Christ was near or imminent, only to be proved wrong generation after generation and century after century, there still should be those who with great earnestness and often with a considerable show of learning insist on that self-same tenet. Such belief has been founded not on knowledge but on ignorance. There is an old saying to the effect that the only thing that people learn from history is that people do not learn anything from history. How true that has been in regard to the doctrine of the speedy or imminent return of Christ. Various ways in which Christ comes. In reply to the objection that we cannot watch for the coming of Christ unless we think of his second coming as imminent, it is important to keep in mind that the word come or coming is used in different senses. There are various ways in which Christ comes. Unless we recognize this, we only involve ourselves in error. Premillennialism fails to do justice to the manifold comings of Christ. It is so absorbed with the final and so-called second coming that it stubbornly refuses even to acknowledge that there are others. The present writer has read numerous premillennial books which treat at length the final coming, but which either ignore or scoff at the idea that there are other ways in which Christ comes. We agree that there will be one great, final, visible, glorious, personal coming. But we find that scripture teaches there are also other ways in which he comes. In both the Old and New Testament, the providential presence and activity of God in human affairs is represented as a coming of God or of Christ. We cite the following. Number one, the coming of Christ to the Christian at death. This is a coming which, so far as affording opportunity to watch is concerned, is fully the equivalent of the second coming. There is a coming of Christ for the believer at the time of his death, and we know that for each of us that event is in the comparatively near future. We believe this was the primary sense intended when Jesus said, 
Watch therefore, for ye know not the day nor the hour. Matthew 25:13. Watch therefore, for ye know not on what day your Lord cometh. Therefore be ye also ready, for in an hour that ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Matthew 24, verses 42 and 44. That coming, like the sword of Democles, which was suspended by only a hair, hangs over the head of every mortal. In many instances it has fallen with startling suddenness. For the Christian it means translation into the very presence of Christ. The present writer recalls a statement made years ago by his college Bible teacher, Dr. J.B. Work, who said, The Lord is coming for me when I die, and the end of the world for me is when I leave it. That, we believe, is the coming of Christ and the end of the world that we have most need to be prepared for. The warnings quoted from Matthew 24, verses 42 and 44, and chapter 25, verse 13, were spoken with great earnestness and were intended as intensely practical warnings to the first disciples. They likewise have been of great practical value to those who have lived in all succeeding generations and are as practical for our generation as for that one to which they were spoken. For the great majority of people who pass through this world, it is this coming rather than the great final coming that should be their primary concern. If these warnings had related only to the final coming, they would have not only been useless, but a source of confusion to those to whom they were first spoken, for the disciples would then have been encouraged to look for an event which in reality was not to occur until the remote future. Many years ago David Brown wrote, The death of an individual is to all practical purposes the coming of Christ to that individual. It is his summons to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It is for him the close of time and the opening of an unchanging eternity, as truly as the second advent will be to mankind at large. He warned, however, against identifying the two events too closely and pointed out that Christ's coming for the believer at death is in no wise a substitute for the final coming. The death of believers, he said, however changed in its character, in virtue of their union with Christ, is intrinsically considered not joyous but grievous, not attractive but repulsive. It is disruptive of a tie which the Creator formed for perpetuity, the unnatural and abhorrent divorce of parties made for sweet and uninterrupted fellowship. True, there is no curse in it for the believer, but it is the memorial of the curse, telling of sin, and breach of the first covenant and legal wrath. All of the ideas, therefore, which death as such is fitted to suggest, even in connection with the better covenant, are of a humiliating kind. Whatever is associated with it of a joyous nature is derived from other considerations by which its intrinsic gloominess is, in the case of believers, relieved. But the Redeemer's second coming is to the believer an event of unmingled joyousness, whether as respects the honor of his Lord, which will then be majestically vindicated before the world, or his own redemption, which will then be complete. A quote from the Second Advent, pages 21 and 22. Number two, the coming of God or of Christ in judgment. In the Olivet Discourse recorded in Matthew 24, 
we have in figurative language a prediction of Christ's coming in judgment on the apostate nation of Israel which coming occurred in the year 70 AD said he but immediately after the tribulation of those days we have already seen that the tribulation referred to the horrors connected with the siege and fall of Jerusalem the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory verses 29 and 30 and in verse 34 we have the time of his coming fixed very definitely Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be accomplished. The use of pictorial language has caused many to believe that this could refer only to the end of the world. But the fact was that those events would be so horrible, so beyond the powers of the human mind to grasp, that ordinary prosaic language could not convey their awfulness. For the Jews who would survive the fall of Jerusalem, who would find their sacred temple in ruins, their nation destroyed, their families scattered or killed, and themselves or their countrymen slaves in a foreign land and in the depths of despair, it would seem as if the very elements of nature had been changed, as if they were in a different world, so great would be the contrast with their former condition. The reference to the sign of the Son of Man in heaven has caused the commentators no little trouble. It is perhaps best understood to mean that not the sign, but the Son of Man, the ascended Lord, is in heaven, that the sign appears on the earth and is seen by the disciples, that it was in fact the event that took place on the day of Pentecost, which was, in the truest sense, a visible and tangible sign to the disciples by which they were enlightened regarding the real nature and purpose of Christ's kingdom and through which they were given the power to speak other languages and so were equipped to be his ministers to the various nations of the earth. In Mark 14 verses 61 and 62 we have a declaration similar to that recorded by Matthew. At the trial of Jesus before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin the high priest asked him Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus answered, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Since this event was to occur within the lifetime of the members of the Sanhedrin, these events are best referred to his coming at the destruction of Jerusalem. Coming with clouds or coming on the clouds of heaven was a familiar Old Testament expression for his coming in judgment. The words of judgment on Egypt spoken through the prophet Isaiah are, Behold, Jehovah rideth upon a swift cloud and cometh into Egypt. And I will stir up the Egyptians against the Egyptians and they shall fight every one against his brother and every one against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hands of a cruel Lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, saith the Lord, Jehovah of hosts. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. In Psalm 104, verse 3, we read of him, Who walketh upon the wings of the wind, who maketh the clouds his chariot. And the prophet Nahum says, 
The clouds are the dust of his feet. Chapter 1, verse 3 Pictorial language is used to portray the judgment of God upon Babylon and upon Edom. Concerning Babylon it was said, Behold, the day of Jehovah cometh, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, the sun shall be darkened in its going forth, and the moon shall not cause its light to shine. Isaiah chapter 13 verses 9 and 10 Judgment on Edom is similarly declared. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. And all their hosts shall fade away, as the leaf fadeth from the fig tree. For my sword hath drunk its fill in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edom, and upon the people of my curse to judgment. Isaiah 34, verses 4 and 5 also in the Old Testament, God's judgment on Jerusalem and Samaria was described in similar language. For behold, Jehovah cometh forth out of his place, and will come down, and will tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains shall be melted under him, and the valleys shall be cleft, as wax before the fire, as waters that are poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. Micah chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 Concerning the events of Matthew 24 verses 29 and 30 as read in the light of Isaiah's and Micah's prophecies the Reverend J. Marcellus Kick whose exposition of this 24th chapter of Matthew is the best that we have found has well said The prophet Isaiah definitely refers the darkening of the sun, moon and stars to the judgment of God against Babylon the language can only refer to Babylon. Babylon, in all its shining beauty and its marvelous glory, was to be totally eclipsed. Hence the use of such highly figurative language. If the Holy Spirit, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, uses such figurative language to describe the downfall of a heathen nation like Babylon, how much more would not such language be used to describe the downfall of the chosen nation of Israel? Surely no one will maintain that when the judgment of God came upon Edom that the hosts of heaven were dissolved and the heavens were rolled together as a scroll and that all the stars fell down as leaves falling from a vine. Surely no one will maintain that a literal sword came down from heaven upon Edom. Surely everyone recognizes this as figurative language to describe a sudden and total judgment against Edom. If the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet Isaiah uses such figurative language to describe the downfall of such an insignificant nation as Edom, how much more would not such language be used to describe the downfall of the Jewish nation? A quote from Matthew 24, page 66. Also concerning these events, Mr. Kick says, if the sun, moon, and stars refer to the Jewish nation and its prerogatives, then we have seen the fulfillment of this prophecy. The Jewish nation has been darkened and no longer shines for God. This has been true ever since the tribulation of those days. God, in his righteous wrath, has removed the Jewish nation from his heavens. The sun of Judaism has been darkened 
as the moon, it no longer reflects the light of God. Bright stars, as were the prophets, no longer shine in the Israel of the flesh. A quote from page 65. Parenthetically, we may add that verse 31 has caused many to believe that these events can refer only to the second coming of Christ. It reads, And he shall send forth his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. In the Greek, the term translated angel is agelos. This, however, does not always mean heavenly spirits. In various other New Testament passages, it is translated messenger. See Matthew 11, verse 10, Luke 7, verses 24 and 27, and chapter 9, verse 52, Mark chapter 1, verse 2, and James 2, 25. In these passages, John the Baptist, the messengers that John the Baptist sent to Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, and the messengers who were sent to Rahab, are called Agioli, or angels. Consequently, the term in Matthew 24:31 does not necessarily mean angels in the commonly accepted sense. We think that here it can be better translated messengers, indicating that the messengers of Christ, that is, his ministers, are sent forth to preach the gospel and to gather in his elect from all parts of the earth. That, in fact, is what his ministers started doing almost immediately after his ascension, and they have continued that work until the present day. Number three, the coming of Christ to the disciples after his resurrection. This was a literal coming, or we may say a literal return. In his last discourse he said, I will not leave you desolate, I come unto you. And... Ye heard how I said to you, I go away, and I come unto you. John 14, verses 18 and 28. And again, A little while, and ye behold me no more. And again a little while, and ye shall see me. John 16, 16. The disciples were perplexed at those words, for they had not yet understood what he meant when he told them that he must be killed and that he would rise on the third day. As the event proved, his resurrection and his appearances to the disciples was a glorious coming again by which he was declared or proved to be the Son of God with power. Romans 1 verse 4 a coming which restored and strengthened the bewildered disciples. When during his public ministry Jesus first disclosed that he was to be crucified he said Verily I say unto you there are some of them that stand here who shall in no wise taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew 16:28. Because this coming was to take place within the lifetime of the disciples, it can be referred to his coming to them after his resurrection. At that time the crucifixion had taken place and the atonement had been made. The kingdom, therefore, was firmly established on its proper basis and had been launched upon its worldwide mission. Hence the disciples during their lifetime truly saw him coming in his kingdom. Number four, the coming of Christ on the day of Pentecost. Peter explained the events of the day of Pentecost by saying, This is that which hath been spoken through the prophet Joel. And then he proceeded to quote, 
And it shall be in the last days, saith God, I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all flesh. Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 21. The attendant gifts are named prophecy, visions, the showing of wonders, signs, etc. And that this was the work of Christ providentially manifesting his presence in human affairs, Peter makes clear in verse 33. Being therefore by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath poured forth this, which ye see and hear. In the events of Pentecost, Christ, the Messianic King, came to his people with a great outpouring of his Spirit, an impressive manifestation of his power, which enlightened and equipped the apostles to be world evangelists, and which in the initial launching of the church resulted in the conversion of about 3,000 souls in one day. Verse 41 Number 5 The coming of Christ to the churches of Asia Minor This was a coming in blessing or in judgment in the early part of the Christian era. To the church in Ephesus the Lord gave this warning, Remember therefore whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I come to thee, and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. Revelation 2, 5 to the church in Pergamum he said, Repent therefore, or else I come to thee quickly, and I will make war against them, the Nicolaitans, with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 2 verse 16 To the church in Laodicea he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Revelation 3 20 this, of course, was not a visible coming, but it was, nevertheless, a very real coming. Similar warnings were given to the other churches. Christ did come to each of those early churches, not with outward appearance, but in his providential care and control. And each of the predictions was fulfilled. He came sometimes in deliverance and to give rewards, and sometimes in judgment. Number six the coming of Christ to various cities in Palestine during his public ministry. When the twelve disciples were sent out on a preaching mission, Jesus said to them, But when they persecute you in this city, flee into the next. For verily I say unto you, Ye shall not have gone through the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Matthew 10:23. He evidently meant that he himself would visit those same cities shortly, for we are told that soon after he appointed seventy others and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself was about to come. Luke 10 verse 1 These passages illustrate again how some references that are generally understood as referring to the Lord's final return are legitimately capable of quite a different interpretation. Dr. Schofield says that the passage in Matthew 10:23 relates to the preaching of the remnant in the tribulation preceding the return of Christ in glory. A quote on page 1009. Another ardent premillennialist, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, wrote that this coming of the Son of Man can be explained only in terms of judgment, which judgment fell on Jerusalem in 70 A.D., a quote in the Gospel according to Matthew, page 106. We feel compelled to reject both of those views. 
It was clearly the purpose of Jesus to preach the gospel in the various cities of Israel. Matthew tells us that Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of disease and all manner of sickness. Chapter 9, verse 35 And Luke records that on another occasion Jesus said, I must preach the good tidings of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for therefore was I sent. Chapter 4, verse 43 we give it as our opinion that the interpretations of Matthew 10:23 by the writers just quoted illustrate the tendency to read the Lord's final return into passages which in reality have quite a different meaning. Number seven, the coming of Christ to believers. There is a coming of Christ to individual believers and a presence of Christ through the Spirit with believers in all ages. In John 14, verses 21 and 23, we read, He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself unto him. If a man love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. And again, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Matthew 18.20 Number 8 The Final, Personal, Visible, Glorious Coming of Christ at the End of the Age Apart from the preliminary and limited comings of Christ, there is to be a final, worldwide coming in which he will manifest himself as visibly and personally as when he ascended from the Mount of Olives. Premillennialists often assume that anyone who acknowledges the preliminary comings does not believe in a final and climactic coming. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.